Let us pray. O God in heaven, our Father above, there is none like you. You are the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign ruler over all of history, the one who does as he pleases with the kingdoms of men. And yet in all your greatness and majesty, you come to dwell with those who are humble and lowly in heart. We exalt you that we might abase ourselves. We abase ourselves that you might exalt us. Speak to us today, Lord, through your word. Speak into our hearts that light might overcome darkness. Feed us at your table. Feed us freely that our souls might be nourished on the flesh of Christ, your son, and that we might truly partake of this life-giving manna that has come down from heaven, this spiritual food and drink you provide for us. Give us your gifts as we give you all praise and honor. Give us glory as we ascribe all glory to you, O Father, with your Son and the Holy Spirit, the eternal triune God. Grow your kingdom, O Lord. Fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord that you may be praised throughout all nations. May your Son's rule be celebrated in every place from the river to the ends of the earth. Fill us with your Spirit that we may live lives worthy of the gospel, fulfilling the righteousness of your law, bearing fruit that brings you glory. Shower us, O Lord, with your love and with your kindness. You are the great God. We are in awe of you and all your works as they reveal all your perfections. Our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. Smash the idols in our hearts and in our lands that we may serve you alone loving You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For You, O Lord, are worthy. O great and glorious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal Trinity, the one and only true God, to You we give all glory, all praise, and all honor. Amen. Grace you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is from Exodus chapter 20. It's the sixth commandment or the sixth word. The Lord speaks, Thou shalt not kill. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that you would give us grace to be life givers, to share with Jesus in his life giving life, his life giving death, that we would give ourselves for one another that we would not take life, but spread it and enhance it. We pray that we do this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus summarizes the law in two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second commandment, which is like the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Those two commandments from Jesus provide a summary of the ten words. And they provide a summary of the ten words in order. The ten commandments, or the ten words, are divided up into two groups of five commandments. The first five commandments are longer than the second five. Each of the first five commandments names Yahweh. Each of the first five commandments contains some promise or threat or some justification 
that explains why the commandment is given. The second five commandments are much shorter. They never name the name of God. They never give any explanation. Stylistically, you can see a stark difference between the first five and the second five. And the first five have to do with love of God, and the second five have to do with love of neighbor. And I think we can go further in seeing a structure in the ten words. Each set of five commandments begins with a commandment that's the heading for that set of five commandments. The first commandment is the heading and the theme of the first five commandments. The sixth commandment, the first of the second set, is the theme and the heading for the second five commandments. All of the first five commandments are expounding the first word, thou shalt have no other gods before me. They're about different forms of idolatry. The first word prohibits direct idolatry, worshiping some other god. The second word prohibits liturgical idolatry, worshiping even the true god using images. The third condemns practical idolatry, bearing the Lord's name lightly. The fourth commandment, which is about the Sabbath, requires us to interrupt our lives, interrupt our work, and devote one day in seven to serving and worshiping God. It's also about idolatry. And as we saw last week, the fifth word, although it's about obedience to human beings, is about it's about obedience to human beings whom God has set over us as authorities over us. We're told to honor or to glorify our parents as we glorify God. That's also, uh, to disobey parents or disregard parents is also a form of idolatry. Each of the first five commandments is expounding some dimension of idolatry, and each of the second five commandments is expounding some dimension of murder. We have five different forms of murder that are described. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, doesn't contain any explanation. It doesn't tell us why we shouldn't kill. I think that's because the explanation has already been given back in the book of Genesis, when after the flood, Noah is given permission to execute criminals, to execute murderers. And he's given permission because an assault on a person is an assault on the image of God. That's why it's a serious offense to attack another human being. It's because you're not just attacking another creature. You're attacking a creature who is made in the image of God. And it's an indirect attack on God himself. Murder is prohibited because it's an assault on God's image. And all the rest of the the commandments, the last four commandments, are different forms of assault on the image of God. The sixth word prohibits us from assaulting the image of God directly through physical harm or physical killing. The seventh word prohibits us from assaulting the image of God as as it exists in marriage. Marriage is created as a living image of Christ's relationship to his church. That's what it's for. And if we damage that relationship through sexual infidelity, then we're assaulting the image of God as as it exists in that relationship. The Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, is also a kind of murder. If you take what I use to keep myself alive, then you're taking my life. If you assault my things, you're not just assaulting my things, you're assaulting me. Because there's a mysterious form of identity between the things that we own and our persons. God has a name, and God's name is to be respected. We're not to bear his name lightly or emptily, says the third word. And the ninth commandment says we should not speak the name of another human being 
lightly. That too is a kind of murder. Our good name or our reputation is a public expression of our person. If you attack uh, someone's good name and you kill their good name, you're attacking the person. It's a kind of murder. And the tenth word prohibits all the desires that lead to all of these forms of murder. We see our neighbor's things and we want to have them. That's desiring an assault on his things. That's desiring to commit the murder of theft. We see our neighbor's wife and we desire to have our neighbor's wife and that's a desire to assault our neighbor's marriage, which is an image of Christ and his church. It's an assault, a desire to assault the image of God. We see our neighbor's good name and his reputation. We want to bring him down a notch. That's also an assault on his person. That's a desire to commit a kind of murder of his reputation. All of the last five commandments are different dimensions of murder. They're different kinds of assaults on the image of God. And the first of these, the sixth word, is a uh, prohibition of direct assaults on persons. Thou shalt not kill is the traditional King James version of this commandment. In my New American Standard Bible, I have you shall not murder, which is more specific. We can kill in ways that are not murder, and the Bible acknowledges different forms of killing. It acknowledges that some forms of killing are not deliberate, premeditated acts of murder. Sometimes we kill people, one can kill another person accidentally. The example that's used throughout the Bible is the flying axe head. Uh, If you're chopping out in the woods with a companion and your axe head is too loose and it flies off and hits your neighbor, you didn't intend to kill him, but you still killed somebody. That's a killing, but it's not a murder. So is this commandment a prohibition of the specific premeditated killing of murder, or is it a prohibition of killing as such? I think the translation that's in the King James Version is the preferable one. If you look at the way the verb is used, especially in Numbers 35, you'll see that the same verb that's used for murder is also used for accidental manslaying. The same verb is used even for capital punishment. The killing of a murderer is described with the same verb. The word means to slay a man. The word means manslaying or killing. But the ones, the translations that say murder are getting at something that's true in the biblical text, true in the Bible, in the law, in the Torah. God does not treat all forms of killing the same. If you take thou shalt not kill and take that as an absolute uh, statement, then we shouldn't kill animals for food. You need to be careful about stepping on the ants on the sidewalk outside. There's no room for capital punishment. There's no room for war. But the Bible doesn't apply thou shalt not kill in that way. The Bible has various restrict or exceptions to the rule thou shalt not kill. The Bible never prohibits killing animals for food, for example. Samson kills a lion that's attacking him. David kills a bear and a lion that's attacking his flock and is never condemned for shedding the blood of an animal. In the law, Israelites were allowed under certain restricted circumstances to protect their own homes with deadly force. If somebody was breaking into your home at night, then you could resist them even to the point of killing them, and you were not committing murder. You're protecting your property and your home and your family against that assault. That's permissible killing. The law permits all kinds of uh, killing by civil authorities. 
Civil authorities can execute criminals of various kinds, especially murderers. In the law, other, other kinds of crimes are also capital crimes. Various forms of sexual crime, adultery, homosexuality, various forms of incest are all capital crimes. Uh, blasphemy is a capital crime. Certain forms of Sabbath breaking are capital crimes. Idolatry, public idolatry is a capital crime. And when the civil authorities kill those who have committed these crimes, they're not doing another murder. That's not prohibiting, that's not breaking the sixth word. They're protecting the health of the land and the health of Israel. The, the, the sins or the crimes that are capital crimes under the law are the crimes that pollute the land. Idolatry, sexual sin, and the shedding of innocent blood. When those things are left unchecked in the holy land that belongs to God, the land gets sick, and eventually the land vomits out its inhabitants. And the civil authorities who are punishing people who commit these crimes are actually protecting the land from defilement. They're cleansing the land by punishing those who shed innocent blood, for example. And they're protecting Israel from being expelled out of the land into exile. Capital punishment uh, is not uh, a kind of murder. War is permitted in some circumstances, and the Lord commands Israel to prosecute total war, holy war, harem warfare, against the Canaanites. Uh, They are supposed to wipe out every man, woman, and child within certain cities of the land. They're supposed to offer those cities as whole burnt offerings to the Lord. All the plunder goes to the Lord. The Israelites don't take any plunder. It's a kind of total warfare restricted to the conquest. But even in normal circumstances beyond the conquest, Israel, uh, Israel engaged in war. So there are certain ways of killing, certain kinds of killing that the Bible permits. But the Bible never gives just blanket permission to, for, to kill. The, ne- the Bible never gives you a blank check to kill. Even when you're protecting your home from an intruder, it doesn't give you a blank check to kill whoever might be breaking into your house. It's only under certain very specific circumstances that you can kill an intruder. When Israel goes to war, they have to follow the Lord's commandments concerning war. If they're making war against the Canaanites in the conquest, then they have to wipe out every man, woman, and child. If they're engaged in another kind of war, then they're not allowed to do certain things in those wars. They have to offer peace first, and they can't make war against the land. They can't destroy fruit trees, and I think that applies also to fruitful or productive human beings. They can't make war on civilians. If you, once they go to war, they just can't, they aren't allowed to kill indiscriminately or destroy indiscriminately. Even in the midst of war, they're under the Lord's commandments. And before they go to war, they have to pay an atonement tax. Exodus 30 describes a, a certain payment that's made before Israel goes to war that covers the bloodshed that they're going to engage in. The Lord doesn't treat even legitimate just war as just a matter of course, that it's okay in the circumstance to shed blood. Even under those circumstances, God is restricting how we kill. Even when it's authorized by God, commanded by God, authorized by civil authorities, it's not a blank check. The Bible even restricts our uh, killing of animals. Deuteronomy 22 says that if you come across a hen, a bird with a nest, and you want to take something for food, you have a choice to make. You can take the eggs, but if you take the eggs, you have to leave the hen. If you take the hen, 
got to leave the eggs. You can't take both. You can't slaughter the hen and take the eggs at the same time. You have to, you're restricted on, on how you can butcher the animals that you eat. I think it's fair to summarize what the Bible says about killing and the various permitted killing, ways of killing in this way. We are only permitted, only permitted to kill in God's name. Only in God's name may civil authorities kill. Only in God's name and under his authority may a householder kill to protect his home. Only under certain circumstances and with certain restrictions are we allowed to kill and eat animals. Our killing, whether it's of human beings or of animals, is under the authority of God. We can kill only in God's name. Now, when I say that, you might think I'm sounding a little like an Ayatollah, killing in God's name. This is a prescription for terrorism. This is a prescription for a bloodbath. Well, is it? Are we saying, are we saying that people kill more when they kill in God's name? If they, if they follow the guidelines of the Bible, they're going to kill more than they do now? I don't think so. Who authorizes capital punishment in our political system? When a judge determines that somebody deserves the death penalty, does he say, I have meditated on the law of God, I have prayed about this before the Creator, who is the Lord of life and death, and I have concluded that this person deserves to die, but I'm doing this under the authority of Almighty God. Have you ever heard that from a judge? Maybe maybe Roy Moore, <laughs> who continually gets kicked off of the court for saying things like that. Judges can't say that. That's unconstitutional. Our system is set up so that killing is by the authority of the judge and not of God. We think that's normal. The killing in the name of God sounds dangerous. Sounds like terrorism. Killing in the name of the judge is okay. How does a president decide to go to war? To send troops who knows where across the world? How does he decide? Maybe in the privacy of the Oval Office, he's before the Lord in prayer. I trust that many presidents have done that. Have they ever come out and said, I've meditated on the word of God and the law of God. I've prayed before the Lord, and as God is my witness, my best conscience is that this is a just cause before God, and I'm doing this, I'm sending troops in God's name. You ever heard that from a president? Maybe 150 years ago. Presidents or civil leaders said like that. No. Our soldiers are sent out by a state whose very ideal, whose very principle is to separate violence from the will of God. That's the principle on which our system is founded. And that leads to less bloodshed. That seems normal. The killing of the name of God sounds extreme. In most advanced societies today, the murder of unborn babies has become a basic right and a basic freedom of pregnant women. We have given, as a society, we have given permission to kill privately to the person who has the most interest in the outcome of that killing. If that's not a reversion to a barbarous system, I don't know what is. 
civilization is founded on the concentration of the power to kill in certain prescribed, constituted, controlled ways. But we've given permission to private people to kill the most vulnerable members of our society. And that's normal. But saying we can only kill in the name of God is extreme. There's a connection between the first and the sixth commandment beyond the ones I've mentioned. The first and the sixth commandments are linked because the sixth commandment's basis is that the Lord and the Lord alone is Lord of life and death. We can kill in God's name because He alone can give permission to take life and He alone gives life. And if we substitute someone else's will, if we say that a judge or a president or a pregnant woman can make her own decision about whether to kill, we've made that judge or that president or that pregnant woman and her boyfriend or whoever else is making the decision. We've given them the lordship over life and death. That too is a form of idolatry. And it is systematic in our political system. This is the principle on which our political system is founded. Perhaps you have some relief that I'm talking about the sixth commandment. Talking about the fifth commandment, you know, parents and children, that hits close to home, but I suppose none of you have ever killed anyone. I I think that's probably the case. None of you has committed murder or even manslaughter. Perhaps none of you have, uh, perhaps only a few of you have actually assaulted somebody. Perhaps that's happened. But don't take, uh, take take, take yourself off the hook too soon. The Ten Commandments, as I've emphasized throughout this series, are a prescription or a description, a character description of Jesus Christ. The Lord addresses his son Israel, and he implicitly describes the character and the life of his eternal son, Jesus, who becomes Israel to redeem Israel, who takes on Israel's, uh, takes on Israel's uh, uh, mission to carry it out faithfully. Jesus is the interpreter and the interpretation of the sixth word. Jesus' teaching tells us what this sixth word is about in its depth. Jesus' example shows us how we're to obey this commandment. In our gospel reading, we read a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus cites this commandment, thou shalt not kill. But he doesn't talk about killing, he talks about anger. He moves from talking about the overt act of killing, which Jesus certainly uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't approve, to talking about the passions and emotions and drives that lead people to kill. He moves from the overt act to the anger that drives us. And he warns that anger leads to judgment. Say an angry word and you can end up before a court. Continue in your anger and you will end up in hell. So Jesus says angry people go to hell. And anger can dominate our lives. Anger can be the driving force of our entire existence. We can keep it suppressed. We can keep it from bubbling out too much. But then some little incident happens. Something frustrates us and it bursts out against a husband or a wife, against our kids, against somebody who cuts us off in traffic. We have a little glimpse of what's really going on inside. We realize that our life is dominated by anger. 
we cover it up. We excuse it. We put a, a veneer of virtue on it. Oh, I'm just plain spoken. Well, maybe. But maybe you've just turned your tongue into a weapon of murder. Maybe you turn your tongue into an instrument to kill people's reputation and to cut them down. I'm ambitious. Maybe. But maybe your anger is driving you just to suppress and destroy the people you're competing with. Your anger can become disguised as humility. It can be turned inward. We think we're being humble, but what we're actually doing is just hating ourselves. And our anger is directed at ourselves. And we cover it over with a show of humility. That's what Jesus does in that passage. Take a moment this afternoon and look at it. Jesus never says, do not be angry. Jesus does not prohibit anger. That would be contradictory or hypocritical. Jesus becomes angry. Jesus is the son of God who is a God of wrath. Jesus does not prohibit anger, and the Bible doesn't prohibit anger. What Jesus tells us to do, he tells us how to act in order to diffuse anger and to overcome evil with good. What Jesus demands is a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees could avoid killing, and they approved of the commandment. Yeah, you shouldn't kill people. That's not enough for the disciples of Jesus. Jesus commands us to engage in practices that don't just avoid evil, but actually overcome evil for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of good. So if you know your brother's got something against you, you know he's angry with you, you're not angry with him. How do you keep that anger from escalating into something that looks like murder? Leave your gift at the altar. Go be reconciled. That's Jesus' command. Jesus doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, be reconciled. Somebody slaps you on the cheek. They probably deserve a slap back. Yeah. You're angry at them. You're, it's outrageous that somebody would slap you on the cheek. They deserve something back. Jesus says, turn the cheek. Endure the second slap yourself. Don't retaliate. Be, you're angry. You have a right to be angry because somebody just slapped you. That should make you angry. Give up your righteous anger in order to be reconciled. Give up your righteous anger in order to bear the second slap yourself. Your brother's demands may be unreasonable. The slapper who slaps you on the cheek is definitely being unreasonable. You have a right to be angry. You have a right to compensation. You have a right to get things settled in court or whatever. Give it up, Jesus says. Be reconciled. Seek peace and overcome evil with good. Jesus keeps the sixth commandment in exactly that way. Jesus' life, Jesus' life and death is a lifelong illustration of the sixth word, a lifelong incarnation of thou shalt not kill. Jesus never assaults the image of God. He restores the image of God. Jesus doesn't wound. Jesus heals. Jesus doesn't take life. He gives life. He doesn't oppress. He liberates. Jesus speaks harsh words, but his words are never intended to destroy except to destroy sin and to destroy sinners so they can be raised up to new life. Jesus uses his words as a sword to protect the weak and to call the sinners, the unrighteous, to repentance. 
if anyone has a right to defend himself and capacity to defend himself, Jesus is it. He's got legions of angels he can call on who can intervene and save him from the soldiers and from Pilate and from the Jewish mob. He gives it all up. He doesn't defend himself. He suffers in silent patience. He dies instead of taking life. And so he gives life through that death. If we look at the sixth word in that fuller gospel context, we can see that the sixth word is a call to follow Jesus in his suffering obedience to the Father. In his suffering, life-giving obedience to the Father. The sixth word is a call to be a martyr, to be a witness, to suffer wrong with patience, to wait for God to judge, to overcome evil with good, and in union with Jesus and by his Spirit, to become agents of life rather than death. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his teaching. We thank you for his example. And we pray that you would give us by your spirit a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. That we would be agents of your life in a dying world. We would be agents of reconciliation. And that we would overcome evil with good. We pray that we would do this for the sake of Jesus Christ to exalt his name so that his name would be proclaimed and glorified throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.